So I'd love you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, which is on page 3 of the church Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, it is the easiest reading you will ever have to find uh, in church. And I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. And really what we're going to do this afternoon, our, our aim this afternoon is to set the series up. Okay, we're not going to take the whole chapter today. We're going to do lots and lots. We're going to spend the whole term, and we'll get to chapter 4 by Christmas, is the plan. Um, so we're going to take our time over it. And what I want to try and do today is set this in a bigger sweep, in a bigger context, to try and show you why this is so significant and important for us. So uh, let's, let me begin by reading um, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It is a quite magnificent start to the Bible. What an opening line to the Bible that is. But here's the thing, as soon as we read this, and as soon as we've got Genesis, and as soon as you hear that Genesis is going to be preached this term, there's a whole load of questions that many of us have got that immediately we begin to think about. Genesis, interesting. Do we believe in evolution? Are we evolution? Do we like evolution or not? Are we happy with six days? Did God really make the world in six days? But surely don't believe. What? Can we really believe in God in a scientific world like this? So many questions start flying into our heads. And what I want you to do is to try with all your might to hold those questions back, to push them back, because I want to say, what if they're not quite the right questions? What if they're not the questions that we should be starting with? Now, we will get to some of those, because I do not happen to believe that those are unimportant things. We will discuss them at some point. But before we get anywhere near those, we've got to ask the question, what is it that God wants us to know? Why did God, when he wrote his Bible, start like this? And I'm going to make a a couple of statements which are going to sound very obvious to you, but I hope um, I will then be able to prove why they're important. The first statement is, this is the first verse. There we are. Uh, That's uh, quite an obvious statement. This is the first verse of what is called the Torah. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, are called the Torah. They are the five books of Moses. They're the books that the man called Moses, associated with this man, Moses. You may say, well, who cares? Why does that matter? Well, because Moses, as he puts together the Torah, he starts the Torah with this sentence. So you've got to ask why. It drives you to ask the question, well, who was Moses? Okay, well, Moses was the man that God chose to lead God's people out of slavery. They were slaves in Egypt. This is the book of Exodus. Lead God's people out of slavery, through the Red Sea, defeat the Egyptian army, bring them through the Red Sea, bring them to Mount Sinai where they're given God's law. And then he takes them from Mount Sinai on a journey 
This is the book of Numbers. For 40 years, for various reasons, you don't need to know why, but you can read it for yourself. 40 years in the desert because he's taking them to a land that God has promised, right? Here's Moses' job to take them from slavery to the land that God had promised them. And the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, is right on the edge of the land. God's people have got all the way from slavery. They've got to the land and Moses preaches to them a series of sermons to prepare them for the land. Right. We're going to go right to the end of the Pentateuch because I want to show you how this, the five books kind of top and tail and how the themes are so similar. Come to uh, Deuteronomy 30. Okay, Deuteronomy 30. It's on page 209, 208. So remember where we are, we've got God's people. They haven't got a land, they're homeless. They haven't got a a place to call their own. God has told them they're going to have that land over there, Canaan. But that land is full of some other people. And God is going to take his people and give them that land. Okay. I'm going to read from verses 15 um, to 20. And I want you to listen. And I want you to listen to this as the end of Moses' books and how it relates to the beginning of his book. He says this, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses says to God's people, what I have done for you is set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. So if we now ask Moses, so Moses, why did you start with Genesis chapter 1? Because Moses will say, that's how I set before you life. I set before you life. I set before you blessing. I set before you God. And the people are about to enter a land, and what are they going to discover when they get to the land? They're going to discover a lot of other gods. They're going to discover idols of the nations. The people of the nations all bow down and worship other gods. And as God's people go into the land, they need to know, in the beginning, God 
created the heavens and the earth. That's what they need to know. It wasn't those gods that created the heavens, it was your God, Israel. And Genesis chapter 1, its primary function in the scripture, the primary function in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the, the primary function of Moses' writing is to say to his people, don't worship idols, worship God. That's what it's there for. It is a plea to God's people to not bow down to idols. Because this is the true God. So it's the first um, verse of the Torah, these first five books. It's also the first verse of the whole Bible. And in a very real sense, what Moses does in chapter 30 when he says, I set before you life and death, I set before you blessings and curses, that's the whole Bible. That's the whole Bible story. It's the story of life and death blessing and curses and over and over again the Bible sets before you this choice, life, death that's the choice now we make choices all the time I went out for dinner last night and there was a menu and on the menu was set before me various things (laughs) It was actually quite a funny menu. I won't go into it now. But there was, hand, there was vegetarian fish and chips, which was hand-battered lemon and coriander halloumi and chips. It, it doesn't matter. It, was, it, it got quite silly. We wondered if the lemon was hand-battered. It doesn't matter. It, 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 was, it, it was funny at the time. I, I now tell you, and I realise it's not funny. There, set before us, was a choice. Now, as you go through life, your choices are set before you. Some are trivial. Some are insignificant. And some are of the most supreme and profound importance that you will ever make. The Bible starts by saying to you, this is the most profound choice you will ever make in your life. I set before you life and death. Now keep your finger in, um, oh, don't, worry, don't worry about keeping your finger. Jump to um, John chapter 1. See how this all fits together. Let me show you John chapter 1. So it's the first book of the Torah. That's important. It's the first book of the Bible. And here's the Bible, whole Bible story. If you thought Moses was important, well, you wait till you get to Jesus. And in John chapter 1, Jesus is called the Word. Look what we're told. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. And he was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Do you not see what a mass in the beginning was the Word? Let me be clear. He's with God. He is God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made and that has been made. In him was life. There's the theme again. You see, choose life. The whole of John's gospel is about choosing life. These things are written, John says in his, the end of his letter, that you might believe and by believing have life in his name. It's life. The whole Bible message is life. Choose life. It's 
everywhere. If you want to live, Jesus says in John chapter 10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Over and over again, this is what's being set before us. Life. Not some nasty halloumi, but life. It might have been nice. And if we trace right through, and we haven't got time to do all of this, but if we trace right through to the very end of the Bible, we would land in a garden, but it's a garden with a city, a city garden. And in this garden, there's a river of life and a tree of life. And God is sat on the throne. And there is no more death. So let's be very, very clear that as we read the book of Genesis, we are dealing with issues of life and death. Moses says, I set before you life and death, now choose life. We're going to come right back to um, Genesis chapter 1 now. With that in mind, it sets up the Torah, it sets up the whole Bible story. It's of profound importance. I've got two things we're now just going to unpack together, um, having set it in its bigger context. Um, Firstly, God is more than a God. God is more than a God. Remember, as they enter the land, they are being confronted with all sorts of gods. Genesis says, don't confuse God with the gods. Don't think that they're a similar sort of level. And he makes that point in Genesis chapter 1 by those stunning opening lines. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God is eternal. God is independent. God does not... Get this, this is going to... Man, this is, we get this wrong so often. God does not need you. He doesn't need us. He doesn't depend on us. He wasn't sitting in heaven saying, I'm so lonely, what shall I do? Oh, I know what I need. I need some people. No. God is independent. God depends on no one. God has life in himself. No one gave God life. He has life in himself. This is, the theologians used to call this the aseity of God. He, he is who he is. He has being. No one gave that to him. It doesn't derive from anyone else. That's not, I'm not like that. I didn't give myself life. My life is dependent on a life giver. God has life in himself. He does not need us. Now that's different to the gods. You see, the gods of the nations need us. I've got to make them, right? I have to feed them. I have to bring them. They they need food, so I bring them food. They fall over, so I have to pick them up. The gods of the nations, man-made gods, the idols, as we're going to see as we go through Genesis, the land that they're going into They depend on humanity for existence. They were our idea. God is not like that. 
in the beginning, God. He is supreme. He is all-powerful. He needs no one and nothing. And he was there in the beginning. And at that point you might say, well, that sounds a little bit nasty and cold. You know, here's a, a God sitting there going, I don't need anyone. No, no, because you see we saw in John that in the beginning was the Word, the Son of God, Jesus. And so you have God not as some unfeeling, I don't need anyone, grumpy old man. But you have God as the one who is supremely complete and satisfied and joyful in the relationship, even within God, because this is slightly mind-blowing, but even within God, the Father and the Son, and then we discover in verse 2, the Spirit, they're all there in creation. Life is there in God. God is life. It's all in Him. In the beginning, God. And you know, sometimes we act as if God needs us. You know, we, we think, well, I, I, I need to give my money because God, ne- God doesn't need your money. He gave you your money in the first place, right? God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your help. God doesn't need, you know, sometimes we pray. We go, Heavenly Father, um, my, my favorite prayer of all time when I was a kid, um, was a, there was an old guy who prayed at the church I was at in Southampton. And he stood up and prayed. And his opening line was, Father, I don't know if you've seen the Daily Echo tonight, but there's been a stabbing. <laughs> and I love that, that kind of... <laughs> just checking in with you, Lord. I've got a few things that you might not have noticed. Can I just update you on a few things? And here's a couple of ideas for how you could put those things right. God doesn't need that. <laughs> Names would love dear old man, and I... I, I only trying to make a point. But God doesn't need us. But he does delight in us. But that's running way ahead in Genesis. <laughs> we'll get to that. At the moment, I want to show you that this God of life is different to the gods of the nations. Now, we may say, but we don't bow down to gods anymore. So what's this got to do with us? Well, I, I, I wonder... What are the things now that captivate our hearts? The things now that we say, this is what matters to me. This is the thing that matters most to me. We're going to try and do a lot of work on thinking about idolatry in comparison to the one true God. Who is it has the affection of our heart? It's interesting in Deuteronomy, when God speaks to his people through Moses and says, choose life, he says, choose life, and to choose life means to worship God. It means to love him and to obey him. That's it. The affection of your heart and your obedience. You love and obey. So idolatry means you love and obey something or someone else. You say, now I'm going to love and obey this thing rather than God. And all of those things need us. So materialism, right? Stuff, the stuff that we buy, the stuff we love to buy that we think, oh, I really love this stuff. It really makes me feel happy. And we obey the advertisers who tell us you need this. You understand that only works because we feed it. It depends on us. That is a God 
that needs us. It's not an independent being. It needs our feeding of it. If you're confused by that, we'll get to lots more of that. At the moment, hang on to this simple fact, this simple thing, that God is more than God's. This independent, creator, life-giving God. But let me just show you the second thing. And that is that life is more than being alive. God is more than the gods. And life is more than being alive. This is what we're going to see again and again in the book of Genesis uh, 3, chapters 1 to 4. What is your, what, how would you define life? Well, I guess most of us sort of know life when we see it. You know, you sort of can identify that's, that rock's dead. There was a craze when I was a kid for pet rocks. Did anyone ever have a pet rock? Some of you did, yeah. You could buy, a cage, you could buy cages for them. <laughs> and you bought, your, you bought a rock and then you bought a cage for it. I remember thinking at the time, it doesn't need a cage. It's okay. It's, of all the pets I've ever owned, this one doesn't need a cage. It's dead. We know the difference, but actually it's very difficult to define it. We could define life biologically, right? If you're of a scientific sort. And if you define it, but, but even if you are of a scientific thought, that people still disagree massively about what actually determines life. But it's probably got something to do with uh, being able to grow, uh, reproduce, metabolize, turn stuff into energy. Something along those lines. So you can say, there you go, there's a definition of life. Right. It's such a broad definition that basically you and an amoeba kind of sit in the same bucket called alive. Which you may be happy with. That may be fine for you. But I think we sense that that isn't quite satisfying as a definition. But as a scientist, it's very difficult to go further than that. It's a bit like a gourmet meal and a mouldy cream cracker. You say they're both food. Well, yes, they are. But we can say more. Surely, Surely we're pushed to want to say more than that. How do I decide if a dog has more value than an ant. Because when an ant comes in my house, I put ant powder on it. When a dog comes in my house, I need some dog powder. What a great idea. Someone write this down. Why shouldn't I? What's the difference? And then what's the difference between a dog and a child? How do you know? It cre- science only goes so far. Which pushes you to say, okay, we've got to answer this question about life. Biologically won't do. Let's answer it philosophically. It, you're forced to think philosophically. That is to begin to, um, to begin to reason. Science answers that scientifically, biologically will help you answer the question, what is this thing? Philosophically, Philosophy, oh, this is difficult. Philosophy will help you to ask the question, why is this thing? What's its purpose? So now you're forced to ask the question, why am I here? What's my purpose? What is my value? Those are philosophical questions, and people argue about those, and people disagree about that too. 
but you're pushing deeper, right? The questions of philosophy take you deeper than the questions of biology. Okay, you still with this? <laughs> people, people completely lost. Biological answer, philosophical answer, the Bible pushes you to theological answer. And if biological answer is about what, and philosophical answer is about why, then the theological answer is about who. And it is impossible for humanity to escape the question, is there someone out there that made me? Am I, is there a master craftsman in whom my life actually resides? And Genesis in the first verse screams out to you, yes, yes, yes. In the beginning, God. Life is to be understood and found in God. You understand life theologically. Theo, God, logic, the study of God. You understand God in order to understand life. That's what we're doing in Genesis. Genesis sets before us life and death. That is, it sets us before us God. And the gods. You see? You will never understand life until you understand the God who made life. Now this, if I might push this a little bit further, means that life is far more precious than our materialistic world will ever understand. Okay, which came first? Let's ask the... um, Let's ask the materialist, the atheistic materialist, which comes first, matter or life? Stuff or life? This is the, this is the atheistic, materialistic worldview. In the beginning was matter and energy. And then some processes happened and life formed as a byproduct, as a secondary, accidental byproduct. Bible, theological worldview says, no, in the beginning was God, in the beginning was life, and life gave birth to matter. You see, God is alive, but he's not a carbon-based life form. Life is something far bigger, far deeper than just a biological machine that metabolizes energy. You've got to go to God to understand that. And that is why throughout the Bible you will discover that it is quite possible for people who are alive to be told to choose life. Because you may be alive biologically, but you are not alive theologically. You are not in relationship with the God of life who made you. And so, come back to Deuteronomy 30, and we're nearly there, and I realise this has been slightly more... uh, complex than I thought it was going to be. Listen to verse... Let me just read verses 19 again. Listen to it carefully. It's a really interesting phrase. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. So you love the Lord your God and listen to him. That is, you worship. You live, love him and listen to him. Look at this. For the Lord is your life. He's not just the life 
giver. He is the life sustainer. He's the one who, when you worship him, you suddenly discover life as it was meant. Not just life, but life as it was meant to be lived. He is your life. That is why consistently in the Bible, when you reject the God of life and you turn away to other gods, you end up in a place of death because the gods of the nations are dead. They are not life. They're death. That is why death is the obvious alternative to life, the obvious punishment for turning away from God. Look, I'm setting loads of foundations here, okay? This is all going to be built on in the coming weeks. And of course, this is why Jesus had to come. Because all of us, if we're honest, have turned away from the one who made us and we've turned to death. And so Jesus himself comes. Jesus who is life. Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's in Christ that life is to be found. And you know this little phrase, the Lord is your life, in Colossians chapter 3, it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. This is life. And our job this term is to allow God to set before us life and death, blessing and curse. So this afternoon, the simple question um, that we're left with is this question of where do you stand with this God, the God of life? Are you someone who loves him and obeys him? Or are you someone who has turned away from him and drawn away to bow down to other gods? Where do you stand? And this afternoon, Jesus says, I came that you may have life. Jesus went to a cross to die. We'll have to see why later in the term. But Jesus came that we might turn back to God. So don't settle for a biological definition. You are not just a machine. Don't even settle for a philosophical answer. Pursue God. Pursue God who is your very life. We're going to pray together and ask that he would teach us much this term as we study his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Thank you that you are life. Thank you that you have always had life, that you have life in yourself. Father, thank you that you enjoy that life with your Son and your Spirit. Thank you that you are the God of perfect life. And thank you that this material world was born out of your life. That the life we enjoy is dependent on you. So, Father, we ask that you'd help us teach us what it means to be your creatures. Teach us what it means to be truly alive. Teach us what it means to turn away from other gods, to turn to you, 
to be captivated by you, that we would love you and obey you. Father, we're sorry for all the times we've turned away. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who is our very life. And please might we turn to him and trust him. Amen.